This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So good evening, everyone, and I'm happy to be here where I happen to be and happy to be in the Zen Center Buddha Hall at the same time. Isn't that kind of what's happening? And um, so can you hear me okay? This is great. And um, so this topic of the intensive, the harmony of Zen and Vipassana, I think, uh, I hope, uh, becomes really uh, obvious when we talk about sila, when we talk about the what's usually called the first of the three trainings. And I certainly listening to Fu and Paul these these days, uh, it seems like uh, there's a strong equivalence with um, the precepts and zazen or the the um, practice of Zen and being ethical, as if <clears throat> that is, uh, came across to me from their teaching. It was very nice. And we find that in the early teachings of the Pali Canon, the basis for the Vipassana practice, you find also this very strong equivalence <clears throat> uh, between uh, um, the whole path of practice and ethics, being ethical. And you find an equivalence between wisdom, prajna, and sila. There's a, uh, a quote from the Buddha, a teaching from the Buddha, that goes, um, um, let's see. I can't find it right now, but uh, that goes, um, uh, when there is wisdom, there is virtuous, virtuous conduct. When there is virtuous conduct, there is wisdom. And the two go hand, to, hand in hand, uh, like a left hand uh, with the two hands washing each other. So they're intimately connected, these uh, wisdom men. And then is it intimately connected to samadhi? And I think that when uh, Fu was talking about Zazen being the equivalence of the precepts. I think you see there an equivalence to, you know, it's a captured there as well. So, <clears throat> so what I want to do is emphasize today uh, how deeply embedded the Western, general Western concept of ethics is in the early Buddhist teachings. Uh, so much so that the goal of the teachings which is usually considered to be enlightenment or awakening, is, um, is an ethical maturation. And sometimes I call it the equivalence of ethics and enlightenment. It's that integral to it all. <clears throat> and that uh, the primary steps along this, the, the gradual path of leading to awakening is an ethical path, and it's a path of eth ethical maturation all the way. And uh, this would have been very surprising to me if someone had told me this as a new practitioner when I was 20, 21 years old. And I think I probably would have just tuned them out. 
I probably would not have been interested in this particular teaching. And I thought you know, ethics was not really something that was of particular concern for me or part of my thinking. If anything, I had a little bit of a negative view of people who were ethical. I thought they were kind of maybe hypocritical or, um, or basing their ethics on some kind of values which were suspect. suspect. And, um, and, um, and I think, you know, and so it wasn't really that interest in ethics. I wasn't really unethical, but I attribute that to mostly a lack of imagination. But then as I kind of went along and uh, doing my practice, first at Zen Center and then in Asia and Thailand and Burma, it was really a huge surprise to me to find myself uh, awakened to an inner ethical life and how that became a guiding light, a guiding experience of beauty that uh, became really precious and valuable that highlighted so much about the choices I make about how I live my life, both in actions, in actions, in words, but not only that, but in, in the mental actions of my mind. That uh, what I do there, uh, it was clear that I could feel the way that um, certain activities and actions uh, diminished myself or brought suffering to myself, contracted myself, or dimmed the wisdom, or I lost touch with this beautiful, this beauty that was developing inside, this freedom that was developing inside. And just like a person who would take their hand off a hot stove, uh, the desire not to, you know, choose the activities of body, speech, and mind that led to this kind of inner harm uh, became as simple and so obvious and so natural, so instinctual uh, as taking the hand off the hot stove. And so it wasn't so much that it wasn't at all that there were ethical shoulds of what I should do as if there were rules coming from outside, but rather they were almost an embodied visceral experience or instinct or uh, a flow of something that was operating that was the guide and a clear indication of where the direction was um, to go that was beneficial, that supported the inner beauty, that supported the inner freedom, that supported the opening of the heart rather than the closing of the heart. And so uh, that gra gradually grew and grew and grew. And then uh, when I started reading the teachings of the Buddha, the early Pali teachings, at some point I became quite surprised how thoroughly ethical they are in nature. And uh, I felt after a while, I felt like I couldn't really turn too many pages without coming across this, that, oh, it's glaringly obvious that this is ethical. So one of the, uh, something that encapsulates this idea is uh, the, the ancient teaching that what characterizes the Dharma is harmlessness, is non-harming. And so the, the Dharma, I mean, you know, Dharma with a capital D, you know, this powerful word that we use that uh, has so many important meanings for Buddhists, uh, whatever it is, its, its primary characteristic is non-harming. So for me, that's an ethical statement. 
because I, I consider that uh, the whole issue on ethics, especially for Buddhists, <clears throat> centers on this, is, this idea of harm, of, of avoiding causing harm. The Buddha, when he was talking about a wise person, um, there was a lot of discussion about wise people in the ancient texts. And the opposite of a wise person was a fool. And sometimes when someone did unethical things, harmed people, killed them, stole from them, sexual misconduct, and the other kind of precepts, broke their precepts, sometimes the Buddha would refer to them as fools. And uh, that's, you know, seems a little bit odd, you know, they're simply fools, that's not much of a punishment, that's not much of a, you know, judgment of someone who's killing people. But I think it stands out in contrast to the Western idea of sin. Uh, my understanding of the Western, at least maybe the predominant maybe ideas of sin in the West, is that it's kind of a, a real, if someone is discerned to be a sinner, it's a pretty damning thing to do, to say, tell someone. And, and if you die having been a sinner, it's pretty serious business when you get to the pearly gates. And uh, the consequences are huge. And in fact, you can't really rectify yourself at some point. Uh, you're kind of stuck. If you die a sinner, you're kind of stuck for eternity that way. So it's a, it's a huge kind of thing. In the, by calling someone a fool, there isn't that kind of existential uh, status of being someone who is condemned to hell, but rather become someone uh, who just needs to develop wisdom, someone who misunderstands, who's deluded. And, uh, and that delusion can be rectified, can be changed. And so that uh, often, over and over again, the ideal person, the person who's awakened, is referred to as a wise person, and this is how a, a, the Buddha defines a wise person. A wise person is someone who does not intend affliction, harm, on themselves, on others, or on themselves and others. Rather, a wise person is someone who intends uh, a benefit for oneself, benefit for others, benefit for self and others, and benefit for the whole world. That describes a wise person in this. So, that, so if, we if you go along with me and see that you know, not causing harm and, and actually causing benefit for others um, are ethical movements, then we see that the very definition of a wise person is someone who's engaged in the world um, actively concerned for the welfare of all concerned, including oneself. And um, the um, um, <clears throat> and one of the ways that the Buddha talks about one is uh, one is concerned or, or benefits others, uh, actively involved in the welfare of others, is uh, the first first the person abstains from doesn't kill, that's not involved in killing and they promote non-killing for others. They don't steal, and they promote non-stealing in others. They encourage others not to steal. They don't, they're involved in sexual misconduct, and they encourage others not to be involved in sexual, sexual misconduct. They don't lie, and they encourage others not to lie. 
and they don't engage in intoxication and they encourage others to do that. So here's a description of someone who's not just passively sitting by themselves, purifying themselves as if the rest of the world doesn't matter. Here's a description of someone who's actively involved in promoting or encouraging others to do the same. And um, so, um, so, um, so a person is concerned for the welfare of the whole world, including them, themselves, is a, is a kind of the, the description of someone who has fully matured in this early Buddhist path of practice. And um, one of the reasons I like, I come to really appreciate this ethical emphasis in these early texts is that uh, it makes things really simple, philosophically simple, metaphysically simple. In fact, uh, philosophy, in a sense, is put aside. Metaphysics is put aside. And we find, actually, that for the most part, the Buddha puts aside making ultimate claims about the ultimate truth. So religious truth is not of great interest for the Buddha. What's of interest for him is, um, is um, you know, do, uh, avoiding causing harm to oneself and others, and benefiting oneself and others in the whole world. Now, this idea of you know that orientation is actually a fairly sophisticated orientation if we understand that even in a conventional person who's happy, and <clears throat> that <clears throat> there's all these little movements of craving, of hostility, of anger, of um, jealousy, of envy, of, um, of uh, holding on, grabbing on to our stories, holding on to uh, the past, holding on to our suffering, holding on to the future ideas, that ev they might, even some of those might seem innocent, but from a mind that's very still and quiet, we can feel that those also are, can be a form of self-harm if there's any clinging or craving, um, grasping involved, even the slightest thinking that way. So some, uh, some Vipassana uh, practitioners will use as a primary, their primary teacher for finding their way in meditation, finding their way in practice, the simple question, am I harming myself or am I not? Am I harming others or am I not? And so it requires a certain attentiveness and sensitivity as the meditator gets stiller and quieter and quieter to be oriented ever so slightly to see where the agitation is. Because the idea is if there's agitation, there's a little bit of this grasping going on and clinging going on. Even if we grasp to ideas that are, you know, just, you know, we know they're not real or something any grasping at all. And so in the Vipassana practice, uh, uh, there's a radical deconstruction process that takes us through radical experiences of, of um, bliss, of joy, of emptiness. Um, and all along the way, there's a almost like an instinct to say, like, like not touching your hand on the stove. There's almost like a biological instinct 
when you get into it, we really get into the flow of vipassana practice to, um, you know, no thank you. I'm not picking that up. I'm not grasping onto that. I'm not holding onto that. And seeing it more and more and more and more subtle until there's no more grasping and, um, and there's no more suffering and no more intention of causing any kind of harm to anyone. So I don't know if that seems very appealing to all of you listening to this, um, but it is a life of, not, of radical non-harming. And one of the things we're learning not to harm is ourselves. And well, maybe that maybe it's a, not as a very wonderful goal, or maybe it's not a you know brilliant goal of you know there's all kinds of religions offer great, fantastic you know possibilities of cosmic consciousness and oneness with the universe and vast experiences of emptiness and dissolving the self and all kinds of things that can seem quite lovely, and I'm sure they are. But I find it's kind of inspiring that for the early teachings of the Buddha, the goal was so simple, not harming self, not harming others, and knowing what it is to benefit self and benefit others. And if a person can accomplish that, if you could accomplish that for yourself, maybe it won't provide you with these great cosmic experiences some people are looking for with enlightenment, their idea of it. But it's fantastic to not suffer, to really understand for oneself what not suffering is, to have that phenomenal peace. I mean, this is a pretty, pretty wonderful thing. And if there's better things to experience, You know, I'd rather wait until I do the first one first. You know, to, to really have, you know, clarified the nature of what happens in my mind and heart that causes pain and suffering to myself and others, and to somehow have um, rectified that or had emptied, emptied myself of those. So um, the... Um, there's this wonderful story. There's there's a number of this. When the Buddha um, was Buddhas were involved in a lot of inter-religious dialogue. People would come and want to debate him from other religions. And a frequent way in which he responded to them was not to debate the doctrines, his doctrine versus their doctrines, and uh, and make claims of which one was superior or inferior. That was he had no interest in that. What he often did was he did this Aikido, this interesting move, where he kind of would redefine the conversation so it was uh, uh, addressing the issue of ethics, the issue of harming and not harming. And, um, and then he would get, people would say, yeah, I agree, you know, not harming is like the best thing. <laughs> and then he'd win the debate, you know, just without claiming anything about his own really too much. But here's an example. Um, uh, 
the um, let's see. I have somewhere these notes about what I'm going to say here. Here it is. So someone came to the Buddha and said, whose Dhamma, whose Dharma is well proclaimed? Who teaches the best Dharma? Who in the world are the ones practicing the good way? Who are doing the right practice? Who in the world are the fortunate ones? So some guy's coming to the Buddha, and he, I guess he wants to debate this topic, but he's asking the Buddha for, you know. And, um, and then the Buddha, instead of answering directly, offers a series of counter questions that leads the person to come to their own conclusion about their questions they asked. And the conclusion is, uh, the, 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 for about the well-proclaimed dharma, the dharma of those who teach the abandoning of lust, hatred, and delusion is well-proclaimed. The practice for the abandonment of lust, hatred, and delusion is practicing the good way. Those who have abandoned and obliterated lust, hatred, and delusion are the fortunate ones. So here he's not making a claim, a metaphysical claim, philosophical claim, um, you know, about the ultimate nature of reality, the ultimate nature of the self, uh, about what the ultimate experience is in terms of some reified experience. He's saying that, uh, that is, everything is defined around the abandonment, the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, you might think that the Buddha was a prude saying that, uh, but the reason, uh, but for the Buddha, greed, hatred, and delusion, in one form or the other, these are kind of umbrella terms for, for a variety of different mental movements, um, are considered to be the root, the source, in a sense, the root from which sprout all harmful, intentionally harmful behavior. And so if you uproot these roots, the source, the, the root from which things grow, harmful behavior grows, there'll be no more intentional harmful behavior. One will not intentionally harm anyone ever again. And, um, and so when the Buddha puts this down in his debate with others, uh, the value of abandoning great hatred and illusion. This example is kind of, not, not exactly in this story, but he's reframing the debate away from religious terms to something that is has to do with behavior and what motivates our behavior. And this emptying of these three forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Some people doubt that it's possible, but the whole premise of early Buddhism that it is possible to first lessen them and then finally have them uprooted. And, um, and in doing so, it's a way of benefiting oneself. It's a way of avoiding harming oneself because the definition or the understanding of greed, hatred, and delusion by the Buddha is someone who's operating under these forces is in fact harming themselves. The very idea of having them is a form of self-harm. The very idea of having them 
means that there is some kind of grasping and greed, grasping or clinging. The very idea of having them implies that someone is caught up in reification and taking, holding on to something as being absolute or fixed or has a real self or something like that. And so to, to begin to shed this greed, hate, and delusion is such a, a pointed purpose of the early Buddhist teachings that over and over again, the goal of his practice, that of an enlightenment or awakening, Nibbana, Nirvana, is defined as the absence of greed, hatred, and illusion. The, sometimes it's more dramatic, the destruction of them, destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, um, and so here we see the very, so if greed, hate, and delusion is the origin, the source, the root for all intentionally harmful behavior that we can do through body, speech, and mind, if that root is abandoned or taken out or destroyed, then the person, the person then would have no more intentional movements towards harming anyone. So when they say that nirvana is a destruction of greed, hate, and delusion, they're not making nirvana into a thing, into something transcendent. They're not even saying in some ways that it's some great unconditional reality. They're defining it in kind of psychological terms. And, uh, or to say it maybe in non-psychological ways, they're defining it in terms of mental actions, mental activity that we have. And the mental activity, the mental stream of our mind has shifted. Something has come to a stop. And that stopping, ending that comes with nirvana is an ethical transformation for the person. So that's why I say that uh, in this early teachings, I talk about the equivalence of ethics and enlightenment. And if you want to know if someone is enlightened, you would look and see, do they do anything intentionally to harm anyone else? Even unconsciously, does it come from their greed, the hatred and delusion that's kind of motivating them? And, um, and uh, there's a... Um, there's a very, in, in Theravadan Buddhism, there's a, you know, and especially the monastics, there's a, you know, big liturgy and a lot of chanting that goes on. And one of the most uh, common and famous chants is the one that describes the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so the, the, the description for the Dharma goes like this. The Dharma is visible here and now immediate, inviting to be seen for oneself, onward leading to be personally realized by the wise. And that's chanted every day in monasteries over and over again. The Dharma is visible here and now, immediate, inviting to be seen for oneself, onward leading and to be personally realized by the wise. So, but what is that Dharma that's doing that? And so here it is. When you know, for yourself, when you know there is greed, hatred, and delusion within you, and when you know there is no greed, hatred, and delusion within you, then 
you know that Dharma is visible here and now, immediate, inviting to be seen for oneself, onward leading, and to be personally realized by the wise. So here what's being described is a personal insight where one recognizes that one has these powers, these forces of greed, hate, and delusion within one. And then one has a, a definitive, clear experience of the mind without them. So it isn't just because you were watching Netflix or something, or you know you were distracted from your own mind, or distracted from greed, hate, and delusion. But there's something that can happen maybe in meditation, where there's a qualitatively clear, crisp uh, experience of mind that, wow, there's not the slightest trace here or inclination towards greed, hate, and delusion in the mind. Wow, this is phenomenal. This is possible? This is, you know, is this, is this, you know, I had no idea that it, this, this level of purity or freedom was possible. So much so, it becomes a reference point for a person that when greed, hatred, and delusion return, they'll now forever see it in a new way. They'll recognize it and they say something like, why should I bother? Why should I pick that up? Why should I get involved in that? That's clearly to my detriment. I know something better. And why should I, you know, why should I put my hand on the hot stove? I know that, you know, that, I know that, you know, that the hot stove is empty of self and I'm empty of self and it's empty of any abiding existence and so I might as well put my empty hand on the empty stove and feel the pain and, <laughs> and the emptiness of the pain. And you know, that's, that's, you know, silly, right? There's a natural instinct to take the hand away from the stove. And I think to really be, a, you know, to, to be in the harmony with reality, with life, we want to be able to go along with some of these natural behavior movements of the heart, the mind that exists. And a powerful one is the one that wants to avoid touching the equivalent of hot stoves, no matter how subtle it might be. And, um, and so to see the Dharma is to see the distinction between being caught in greed, hate, and delusion and the possibility of not doing it. And where do we see that? We don't see it in a book. We see it in ourselves. That's, that's where the Dharma is immediate, visible here and now to be experienced directly. And I love this expression, inviting to be seen for oneself. There's something in the very experience, our, our inner experience of how the mind operates, what the mind is doing, that's kind of like saying, hey you, come over here, look at this feel this, know this. It's kind of a nice welcome. This is where you discover the Dharma. The Dharma for the Buddha, which is ethical in nature, in that, you know, it's avoiding harm. As, so when, you, when you're free, when, you, when greed, hate, and delusion diminish, then we diminish the forces inside that cause harm to ourselves and to others. When greed, hate, and delusion is completely eradicated, then those are completely gone. 
towards oneself and towards others. And that feels very good. It feels fantastic. I mean, what a great thing. It's like finally, you've been wearing a shoe all your life that didn't fit your foot. It was too, it was too small. And finally, you either go barefoot or finally you get a shoe that fits. Ah, this is good. So with greed, hate, and delusion, it's kind of like having shoes that don't fit your whole life. And people don't even know it. They thought that was just the way things are. And then finally, to get the right fit. Wow, this is good. Um, so in terms of ethics, then, or this, this movement, it's possible to uh, uh, interpret or analyze the gradual pro progress, the gradual development, maturation along the Buddhist path as described by the Buddha as a continual move, ethical movement. And uh, we see that, for example, in the, <clears throat> in the Eightfold Path. It's kind of like, that's like the core representation of the Buddhist practice and you know, what he was taught, teaching. And uh, four of those eight steps uh, have to do with our relationship to other people. And therefore, it makes them, you know, whether we harm others or don't harm others. So the middle of the Eightfold Path is uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Right speech has to do mostly with how we speak to other people. And right, right speech is to avoid speaking in a way that harms others. Right action is mostly involves other people. And we're, uh, it's all about other people because, you know, usually, you know, I guess you can kill yourself, but, but it's about killing other beings or stealing from them or sexual misconduct with them. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's about establishing a healthy relationship with others. You do the opposite thing, you know, kill them or steal from them or abuse them sexually. And um, right livelihood is about also about how we live in the world and the effect we have on people. Right intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, has to, uh, central to that is living a life that uh, avoids uh, cruelty and avoids ill will, hostility. And um, and, as, and this the absence of those is understood by the tradition to be a life that's uh, motivated by loving kindness and by compassion. So we see that even the Eightfold Path, it's deeply ethical in nature. But then if we go into things like um, right mindfulness, the seventh step of the Eightfold Path, uh, in the suttas is described that as a person gets really well established in mindfulness, in this kind of lucid awareness of mindfulness, that um, the mind is no longer agitated, it's no longer distracted, it's no longer pulled by the nose into our attachments and our desires and all that. And it becomes a mind that becomes more and more free of attachments, temporarily at least, which is equivalent to no longer being driven by greed, hatred, and delusion by grasping. And so the Buddha said that uh, when you're well established in mindfulness, uh, the tendency to do unwholesome, painful things, harmful things, gets, um, uh, gets crushed. A little bit of violent language gets crushed. The eighth factor of the, uh, the eighth step of the Eightfold Path, right concentration, is also described ethically 
because one of the primary reasons to develop the deep states of meditation is because uh, they uh, are, are at least a temporary cessation of greed, hate, and delusion. It's a temporary cessation of any harmful motivations, harming motivations a person might have. Anything that, any motivations that would harm oneself or harm others. And to have the experience of the absence of that, as I quoted earlier, is having experience of the Dharma. And so the point of these deep states of meditative bliss is not the bliss, which people get sometimes addicted to or excited about, but rather is to be attuned to how to enter those states. There's a process of emptying ourselves of unwholesome tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not permanent, but it shows the way. And, it, and the way it shows, it, it, if you're uh, well attuned to this process of really being sensitive and feeling, recognizing the slightest movement towards attachment, to that, um, then even in these deep states, you go beyond the bliss. And you go on, go on into deeper and deeper, uh, or, or um, fuller and fuller experiences, experiences of not having any grasping, any clinging whatsoever. Until there is one of these definitive experiences where something clearly in the mind and the heart, the body, the body drops, body and mind drop away. It's a clear ceasing of something. Wow. This is the absence of greed, hate, and delusion. This is a mind which is free of any force of suffering within. At that point, the definition of a person who has those experience becomes a person who um, is, um, uh, the language is, is they're endowed with ethics, endowed with virtuous conduct. It isn't that they practice virtuous conduct, but now it's kind of begins defining who they are. And then the more and more the person matures in that, um, they, they say the person uh, no longer practices the Eightfold Path, they become the Eightfold Path. And that ethics is at the heart of the Eightfold Path. They become ethical. And it's not a question of, um, of rules to follow. It's not a question of not causing <clears throat> harm to anyone. It's not a question of um, developing virtues and these beautiful qualities within. It's just a, it's just uh, a person now is so fully integrated that these qualities of freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion that there's an inner purity and inner beauty and inner uh, peace that um, that uh, means a person now is in, is incapable of intentionally killing anyone, intentionally stealing. And here comes one that you're probably now you're going to go home and say, forget this Buddhism. Some of you is no longer capable of sexual intercourse. So not just incapable of sexual misconduct, at least that's what it says in the text. No more, you know, it isn't that the person is, you know, abstaining from that. It's just that that interest goes away completely. 
So that's a kind of, you know, now we're talking, maybe you're kind of with me until that point, but what? That's where it's going? Well, I'm going to go, I'll go somewhere else now, because that's asking too much of me. And, um, but there is this radical, the point being, there's this radical transformation. Finally, I'd like to say that, um, so I'm, I'm trying to make the point of how thoroughly, completely ethical this early tradition is, and, and part, the part and parcel of what Vipassana practice is about. And that um, it is something that can be practiced and attained and done, and worked on. And that it makes, in some ways, uh, a religious life pretty simple. There's not a lot of complicated things to believe or figure out. You just have to be sen very sensitive to these psychological forces within us and to really feel and understand and sense the impact they have on oneself and others. And, um, and you know, that doesn't, I can, with some authority, I can say that that doesn't take a PhD in Buddhist studies. And, uh, which I have, those of you who might not know. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the purposes I have that PhD in Buddhist studies, so I can tell you that you don't need that to become free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And um, the um, um, and then becoming a wise person. A wise person is someone who lives for the welfare of self, the welfare of others, the welfare of self and others, and the welfare of the whole world. A wise person encourages others to be ethical as well. What's it, the last thing I'll say, that another one of these, I think, radical aspects of the Buddhist teachings, nowhere, as far as I can tell, unless you're a monastic and have you know, agreed to a certain way of life, that for lay practitioners, nowhere does he obligate people to be ethical. Nowhere does he obligate anyone to live by the precepts. Nowhere does he instruct anyone to go for refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. He clearly approves of these things, but he doesn't tell anyone to do them. In the, at least in the early Buddhist teachings, it's not a path of obligation. It's not a path of duty. It's not a path of, uh, of um, you know, certainly of rules that we're supposed to follow. In fact, when um, a fascinating thing about when a person becomes endowed with, with ethics, when they become ethical, rather, um, uh, that, that was simultaneous with that is they no, longer, they no longer cling to ethics, ethical behavior. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Once you become ethical, you don't cling to ethical behavior. So, I think that's enough. Um, a lot of explanation, more explanation than there, for me, a traditional Dharma talk. But I felt it was uh, in, in this Zen and you know, Vipassana intensive. Uh, I, I wanted to emphasize this because uh, my sense is that um, it's an ethics that uh, that it's really clear that there's a lot of agreement in Zen and Vipassana, a lot of harmony. 
maybe not in some of the details and some of the things I said about greed, hatred, and delusion and the ending of it, all that, but that the behavior of a person becomes ethical and that, and that uh, living by the precepts is uh, central to this whole enterprise. And, and, uh, and, th- and it's, uh, I hope that that's where we can, as these traditions come together, uh, we can celebrate and, and you know, have civilized parties to appreciate how wonderful it is a life of ethics in the world where <clears throat> there's so much unethical stuff. It's phenomenal, right, how much goes on in this world. Yesterday, some of you maybe were there, but yesterday was the 49th day, you know, uh, which is usually 49th day after someone dies. In many forms of Buddhism, they commemorate the death of someone, the final memorial service or something. And there was a big uh, public commemoration of 49 days after the uh, eight people were, six of them Asian Americans, and they were killed in Atlanta. And uh, and that day, IMC uh, approved a statement as, as opposing violence against Asian Americans and supporting Asian Americans. And then to wake up this morning and read the paper that on Market Street in San Francisco, someone stabbed two Asian Americans. There is so much unethical behavior in this world, so many, so much ways in which we harm. So maybe we'll quibble about some of the details of these kinds of what's behind ethics and what gets us to be ethical or the source of ethics. But I hope we don't quibble about how important it is to live a life where we are avoiding causing harm, supporting other people to avoid causing harm, and we do even better. We benefit ourselves, and we benefit others, and we encourage each other to benefit each other, to bring welfare and happiness and well-being to ourselves and to this world. That's a great thing to do. That's a well, well, a life well worth living, I think. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.